When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh! Wonderful shot by Lennox Lewis! A right hand by Holyfield! By Boston Douglas! Look at this! He's knocked by Tyson down for the first time in his career! But unfortunately, it'll never happen. Crunch! Punches! And punches! And it's over! I think it's gonna be over! say there seems an element of genuine hate between these two Ambrose. For sure. I don't hate the man. Just imagine if you bought a ticket. Stop it, Frank. You can stop it any time. Castillo's in trouble. Weak steps in and the fight is over. Welcome back, fight fans, to another episode of Legendary Nights. And this is our season finale, season two. It's been great to do another season of Legendary Nights. You know, people that have been listening to us for a while, you know, our first season, we didn't really know where it was going to go and, and how far we was going to take the, the the actual content for Legendary Nights. We then decided after about 30 episodes, we need to slow down a little bit and actually turn this into a more series-based podcast, which is which is what we've done. And now we're here, season two, episode number 10. The tale of Larry Holmes versus Jerry Cooney. And a great fight, a great hype around this particular one. A great story surrounding how this fight came about and the uh, the media frenzy that's around this particular fight. I'm looking forward to doing this one, Johnston. This is a, a great way to end Season 2. But before we get into it, let's go back to a bit of pop culture. Let's go back and set the scene to the year of this fight in 1982. So... The United States President was Ronald Reagan, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Margaret Thatcher, God help us at the time of course, Uh, the the Falkland War started in April and ended in June, Ozzy Osbourne decided he wanted to (laughs) eat the head of a bat on stage, which is what he did. Uh, Topping the charts, the Billboard charts in particular, was Olivia Newton-John with Physical. The number one movie of the year was E.T., the 1982 World Cup winners was Italy. Ireland won the Five Nations Championships in the rugby. The Stanley Cup winners was the New York Islanders. The NBA Finals winner was the LA Lakers. In the Super Bowl, the San Francisco 49ers were the winners. And the Wrestler of the Year was Bob Backlund. But the most popular wrestler of the year was actually Andre the Giant. In football in England, the old Division One, what is now known as the Premiership, The winners of that title was Liverpool. The FA Cup winners was Tottenham Hotspur. And what was known as the European Cup back then, which is now known as the Champions League, the winners was Aston Villa. The best footballer in the world in 1982 was Paolo Rossi. What a way to set the scene. You know, all these these particular things happening at the time. I didn't realise E.T. came out in 1982. Yeah, yeah, I think it came out in the summer of 82 um it was also the year i was born i was born in november of 1982 so uh 
just just to add a little something to the list there. But uh, and Paolo Rossi obviously picked up the Ballon d'Or because uh, he was a superstar for Italy in the World Cup. But um, yeah, what a year! What a year! Right, eh? 1982. Jesus Christ, 38 years ago, insane. Uh, but yeah, a great way to start it off. Just just to set the tone of what it was all about. I mean, it wasn't the Six Nations then? It was Five Nations and the, the European Cup. Uh, was just a knockout competition. No group stages. No, um, if you finish fourth, uh, may the fourth be with you and you can make the Champions League. This was top of the league. The actual winners of every league in Europe um, and, and in Aston Villa come out of winners. Incredible. So, as always with Legendary Nights, we like to do the intertwining careers of both of the competitors that we're discussing. It's interesting for this one because we've done a lot on Larry Holmes and his career profile. So a lot more of the content comes really from the side of Jerry Cooney. Now, it isn't a career profile, this, but to get a feel of this tale and who Jerry Cooney is as a person, we think it's probably best to go back a little bit in his early life and find a little bit more about Jerry Cooney before we we talk about the intertwining road. Now, Jerry Cooney is a keen supporter of the Hands Are Not For Hitting program, which tries to prevent domestic violence. Now, the man who was raised in Long Island, New York, has a strong reason for holding this campaign so dear to his heart. And he said, I grew up in a rough, tough, alcoholic household. My father was abused and he didn't learn about it, so he did the same thing. Five brothers and a sister, we all had our own hiding places and I learned a lot of negative things about growing up. I could never express myself. If I raised my voice, I got beat, so I stayed at the back of the room, and that would carry across into school. Now, in his teenage years, he and his brother Tommy were encouraged to box by their abusive father, who had built a ring in the backyard for all the kids to practice. They began training at the Huntington Athletic Club in Long Island, New York, under the tutelage of Jan Capobianco, now, Tommy Cooney actually reached the finals of the New York Golden Gloves sub-novice heavyweight division, whilst Jerry won his first New York Golden Gloves championships in 1973. Jerry Cooney remembers this moment fondly, and he said, At 16, I went into the Golden Gloves, and I remember that I won the middleweight championship in the state of New York, which was a very big thing. I had seven fights, five knockouts, and I remember it helped me to express the anger I had felt becoming a fighter. It was a place I could express myself, and nobody tell me no. So the following year uh, Jerry Cooney actually lost in the light heavyweight category but in 1975 the then New York State Athletic Boxing Commissioner and good friend of Cooney's but later on in life actually uh, Randy Comish Gordon remembered the moment Cooney arrived on the boxing scene as a potential talent. In his own words he said Team USA had chosen many of its best boxers to face the then well-dominant and always rough Russian squad. The man chosen by Team Russia to face Cooney was at least five inches shorter. However, the Russian was an explosive puncher with both hands. One of his specialities was beating much taller heavyweights. One of his victims was the legendary Cuban star Teofilo Stevenson, a career profile we've done. Check it out. The Russians had studied films of Cooney and put the call in to their giant killer, a booming left hook to the jaw put the Russian to sleep in the very first round. Just just demonstrating the power that Cooney had. The following year, Cooney won his second Golden Gloves title at the heavyweight category and was now on the trail 
of the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Randy Gordon, again, he explains that the reason why Jerry Cooney didn't go to the Olympics. And he said, when Cooney's dad, Tony, fell ill and then died in 1976, Cooney needed to reset his focus. There would be no Olympics for him. He would take his vaunted power and turn pro, guided by two Long Island businessmen. Cooney confirmed that he was indeed invited to participate for Team USA at the Montreal Olympics, but he said, I thought it best to take some time off and spend it with my mother. Now, even though Cooney did not make the Olympics, his early career didn't go unnoticed, with newspapers beginning to print and write about his hot potential. Cooney remembered the impact that had on him, and he said, Then they put my picture in the paper, and it made me somebody, and later, it kept me alive. But then, some way down the road, it had a self-sabotage mechanism involved in it that would come out later on. Now, he ended his amateur career with a very respectable record of 55 wins and only three defeats, and fought his first professional fight on February the 15th, 1977, knocking out Bill Jackson in the first round at the Sunnyside Garden in Queens, New York. As Randy Gordon mentioned earlier, Cooney did sign with two local businessmen, co-managers Mike Jones and Dennis Rappaport, known in the media as the Wacko Twins. Cooney told CBZ Newswire, I don't remember too much about the offers we were receiving, but I signed on with Dennis Rappaport and Mike Jones mainly because they were managing Howard Davis and Ronnie Harris, but they had absolutely no background in the business. On the bright side... Victor Valley became my trainer. So while Cooney was making his debut, Larry Holmes had spent almost nine months out of the ring after breaking his thumb twice, first against Roy Williams and then again in training. He made his return to the ring in January 1977 by outpointing Tom Pratter and then knocking out Horace Robinson in five rounds two months later to go 24-0. He was scheduled in for a semi-final bout for the United States Boxing Championships against Stan Wald. But the tournament, which is what we have mentioned this before, the tournament promoter Don King, um, who was actually funded by ABC TV and had the Ring magazine heavily involved in the project, was suspended pending an investigation into bribery, corruption and outright fixes. After debating the possibility of leaving King, Holmes reluctantly decided to stick with Dodgy Don for the sake of his career. Another couple of routine victories followed over Fred Hope, a.k.a. Young Stanford, and Ebar Arrington before he finally got his big break against the fellow King promoted fighter, Ernie Shavers, who at the time was 54-6-1. Ernie, great career. Jumping back to Cooney and before Holmes embarked on the most significant fight, Cooney had marched his way to a 10-0 professional career record with nine knockouts, five of which came in the first round. His 11th fight came against S.T. Golden, who weighed in at 187 pounds, nothing more than a cruiserweight. On March 17, 1978, at the Aladdin in Las Vegas. The bout can be seen in two parts on YouTube, and what you can see is Gordon looking very tired, sluggish, and holding a hell of a lot. The excessive holding became overly persistent, and referee Richard Green, well, he decided he had seen enough and he disqualified Gordon. It wasn't a good night for 
for Cooney. Gil Clancy said in fight commentary, this is a bout that doesn't make Cooney look good. It's the wrong opponent. People are actually laughing. And Dr. Ferdy Pacheco, who sat ringside, said a fight like this is not good for boxing. Even though Gil Clancy, well, he wrote off Gordon as a boxer, Gordon would actually go on uh, to improve and actually score uh, major victories over Carlos De Leon, Jesse Bennett and Trevor Burbick. So uh, he got that slightly wrong. It wasn't as bad as people made out as to Gordon, but it wasn't a good fight for Cooney. One week later... Larry Holmes was ready for the biggest fight of his career and Gansoni Shavers. And to help him prepare, Ray Arcel and Freddie Brown were brought in as seconds to assist Richie Giacchetti. Larry's performance, well, it was sublime against one of the biggest punchers in heavyweight boxing history. On March 25th, 1978, at the Palace in Las Vegas, Holmes moved brilliantly through quick combinations, switched up the angles and he beat Shavers to the punch. The only time he ever seemed in trouble was early in the sixth when Shavers backed him into a corner and began working to the body. Across the ring, Giacchese, Arcel and Brown were screaming for him to get out of there. Get out! Holmes was unfazed as he smiled at his handlers and shook his head. No. He was in complete control and from then on he continued to dominate. Then in the twelfth and last round, he caught Shavers with an overhand right before ripping off a nine-punch barrage. Holmes went on to win a split decision and after the fight, Ray Arcel spoke highly of the new world champion and he said, Larry had it all in the ring and I compared him a lot with Jack Sharkey. The one thing he seemed low on was self-confidence. I always had to give him a kick to make him realise how good he was. I think some of that came from the fact Don King kept him around for so long as Muhammad Ali's sparring partner. He was looked at for so long as just a warm-up guy. He never really developed that sense of pride and confidence and feeling of belonging that a fighter needs. I always had to keep telling him, you're going to be long retired before people realise what a great fighter you are. I guess I was also thinking that it would take that long for him to realise it too. Don King, of course, was as greedy as ever and he only paid Holmes $50,000 out of the announced 200000 Ah, oh, typical Don. Finally, though, Larry Holmes, now 29, had arrived on the heavyweight scene and he had become the WBC's number one contender. Um, next would be the highly anticipated nationally televised heavyweight championship bout with the WBC world champion at the time, Ken Norton, 40-4 on June 9, 1978 at Caesars Palace Sports Pavilion in Las Vegas. Check out our final episode of the Legendary Knights in Season 1 for Holmes Norton. Uh, one bit of information that we did fail to share with you during that episode was that Larry Holmes was actually shortchanged once again. He actually told Jack Newfield that he only got $150,000 for the fight, not his contracted half a million, or recorded on box recklesses and I think on Wiki, 300000 for his brutal fight with Ken Norton that ended in a split decision in his favour. So uh, just had to just point that out, (laughs) Don King. So jumping back to Jerry, and from June 22nd, 1978 to February 26th, 1979, Jerry Cooney won six fights to go 16-0, knocking out or stopping four, but they were all against average opposition. Yet, he was still getting rave reviews from some recognisable figures in boxing. Once again, Gil Clancy 
said Jerry Cooney is the first heavyweight that has come along in years that when he hits you, he puts lumps on you. If you get in here with Cooney, you get hit and you get hurt. Bob Arum also uh, was uh, speaking highly of Jerry, said, I think that Jerry Cooney has marvellous potential. And some, um, there was one particular guy that I heard say this, um, I didn't get his name, but he even credited his left hook as the best in heavyweight history. A little bit too much for me there. His manager, Rappaport, explained his rise as there's the love affair taking place today between America and Jerry Cooney. It's so profound that it will make people forget that I'm a federal member. There's Mob, Apple Pie and Jerry Cooney. On the outside, Cooney looked to be heading in the right direction under his co-managers, even though his opposition were way short of the talent needed to progress your career. Even Cooney himself recognised this and later admitted after his career had ended, realistically, with Rappaport and Jones, I made money. But in the long term, I was getting fucked. I was just a naive kid trying to move up the ladder whose growth was really stunted by inactivity. By the time Cooney knocked out Charlie Johnson in just one round at the Felt Forum in New York, Holmes was making his third defence of the WBC heavyweight title against Mike Weaver, 19-8, in a surprisingly close fight at Madison Square Garden. Now, the fight was shown on closed-circuit television in 45 locations and on home box office, with HBO paying $150,000 to televise the fight after the other three major networks, ABC, CBS and NBC, turned it down. Now, Weaver was a heavy underdog, but he gave Holmes a much tougher fight than anybody expected. It was even going into the middle rounds, and the 14,136 in attendance quickly got behind the underdog. Sports writer Dave Anderson wrote in the New York Times, as soon as Mike Weaver landed one of those big right hands, the people in the rafters started chanting, Weaver, Weaver, for a heavyweight most of them had never heard of until the match was made. William Detlov explains the fight from then on in in his article for the ring, Holmes Weaver, 30 years later. Back and forth it went over the middle rounds. Not always pretty, but damn compelling. Holmes jabbed and tried to land rights. Weaver bombed him back with right hands and left hooks. The two pounded away at one another in the 8th and ninth rounds. At the start of the 10th, Holmes told Weaver, I'm the champion, there's no way you're going to beat me. Weaver replied, I'm going to try. Both men were hurt more than once, and with 12 seconds left in the 11th, Holmes wheeled everything he had left into a right uppercut that caught Weaver clean and dropped him hard. The rest between the rounds wasn't enough. At the start of the 12th, Holmes pinned Weaver against the ropes and pummeled him until the referee, Harold Vallon, stopped it. Holmes claimed later that he contracted the flu during training camp and that he wasn't bothered by the crowd siding with Weaver. And he said, I heard them yelling for him, but it didn't mean anything. At the time, he was beating the hell out of me, so they yelled for him. When I was beating the hell out of him, they were yelling for me. Tough victory there for Holmes, but he did come through it to his credit and... uh... Well, just before the Ernie Shavers rematch, uh, a rift was beginning to develop in Holmes's camp between his long-term handler, Giacchetti, and the trio now of Arcel Bran and his soon-to-be new trainer, Eddie Futch. Now, according to the sports journalist Jerry Eisenberg, he said, as in he, Giacchetti, always blamed King for bringing in Ray and Freddie. But I was the one who got the ball rolling. 
I'd watched Holmes fighting under Giacchetti and, and I was pretty clear that he had been getting through without a convincing jab. Getting through well, mind you, but still riding for a fall if he couldn't work on that part of his game. When I suggested to Ray that he take a look at Holmes, he didn't want to hear uh, about it at first. Nobody was more sensitive than Ray about stealing another trainer's fighter. But one day I brought Larry around to Ray's apartment and he couldn't do anything about it. One thing led to another and in the space of one afternoon, Ray taught him 23 ways to use a jab, including how to deliberately miss with it. It was after that tutorial that Holmes went to King about Ray. Now, when Futch got his first look at Holmes training for the Shavers title fight, he told Dave Anderson, I didn't like it. He wasn't boxing his sparring partners. He was fighting them, slugging it out. I told him, you're in great shape, Larry, but you're working wrong. Fighting your sparring partners isn't the way to get ready for shavers. He said, I can do that with these guys, but I don't intend to fight shavers that way. I intend to box shavers. I said, but at some point in the fight, you're going to do sub- subconsciously what you're practicing here. If you do that with shavers, you could be in trouble. And Larry did just what I warned him he would do. He got knocked down by a right hand. <laughs> that just goes to show you the uh, the excellent brain, doesn't it? To be honest with oh, you, the, brilliant brains, the, the brilliant brains that that they had, and uh, it was it was it was great that we was able to obviously put this in because we didn't really discuss this in Larry Holmes's career profile. So to add this bit in about Ray Arcel and having done Ray Arcel's career profile as well, it was great to kind of tie the two together really with this little story. Now, whatever the feelings his trainers had for one another, Holmes came up with a stop his victory in the 11th round over Shavers. The fight was televised live on primetime by ABC, who paid $3.5 million for the fight, with Holmes reportedly earning $2.5 million and Shavers getting $300,000. But we're almost certain King probably shortchanged one of them, definitely, if not both fighters. Now, after dominating the first six rounds, Holmes was knocked down in the seventh round by a devastating overhand right, hitting the canvas flat on his back, but he got up and he survived the round. And he regained control after the 7th round. And by the 11th round, Davy Pearl stepped in and looked at Shaver's right eye. And that would later need 29 stitches and said, Want me to stop it? No, said Shaver's. The fight lasted two more punches before Pearl stepped in to stop the fight. As Shaver stumbled back to his corner, Holmes followed him, put his arms around him and whispered, I love you. You're a great fighter. You're a man. Shaver's later said, that he'd been thumbed in the eye by Holmes, a complaint that will crop up again later in the episode from a, another camp. Now, jumping back to Jerry Cooney's career, there was bad blood in his next fight against John Dino Denis, who was 35-2-1 in their fight at Madison Square Garden in New York on November the 9th, 1979. Cooney remembers that he, as in Denis, had a real attitude. I don't know what his problem was, but he put his hand over my face at the weigh-in and I slapped it away. We scuffled a bit, but it was enough to irritate me. I took him out with one left hook in the third round. And the United Press International, they wrote about this fight and they said, Jerry Cooney has thrust himself into the heavyweight title picture. The unbeaten Cooney set himself up for a possible heavyweight title bout with a TKO of veteran John Dino Denis. 
Cooney turned Denny's face into a bloody pulp with a series of punches to the head in the second round and then put Denny flat on his back with a crushing left hook that sent blood streaming down his face. Referee Tony Perez stopped it with 1 minute 44 seconds left in the third round. Jerry Cooney explained post-fight, I didn't think I would take him out that early, but when I cut him, I knew it was a matter of time. I led with the left in the last round because he was moving sideways. He walked right into it. Oh, great, great stoppage that you can again see that finish, uh, stunning finish against Denis. But I mean, again, you know, not the best of opponents, just be honest. But another stoppage for Cooney rounded off 1979 and it set up his first biggest test to date against Jimmy Young on May 25th, 1980 in front of 3,000 at the Convention Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Now, Cooney entered the fight ranked number one by the WBA and number three by the WBC. The fight was actually televised on uh, live on CBS, and it was a solid performance from Cooney, who opened a bad cut over Young's right eye in the third, which led to the fight being stopped at the end of the fourth by referee Tony Perez. Nevertheless, it was a good victory for Cooney against Jimmy Jimmy Young. Then, on July 7, 1980, well, Larry Holmes continued his heavyweight reign by going 35-0 when he stopped veteran Scott Ledoux in seven rounds in Minnesota. Uh, but unlike Cooney, who got more plaudits than the current heavyweight champion, he was still not considered to be the real deal. For many, as we mentioned in his career profile, Holmes would only get the recognition if he beat Muhammad Ali, who was currently inactive after beating Leon Spinks in their rematch two years prior. Of course, as we know, Ali decided to come out of retirement on October 2nd, 1980, in hope of becoming a four-weight world champion. But he was way, way past his best and should never, ever have taken his fight. Albeit the pressures from the ring or outside the ring was too strong to ignore, and he obviously did make that return. Larry won every single round in a one-sided beating before Ali's corner threw in the towel uh, in the 10th. Uh, just a sad, sad performance. He also picked up the ring and the lineal heavyweight titles. But after the fight, again, we have spoke about this. Larry, Larry Holmes is very emotional in that post-fight interview. Uh, when he was asked, he was actually crying, uh, asked why he was crying. He just said he respected Ali a whole lot. He fought one of the baddest heavyweights in the world today, and you cannot take credit from him. Years later, Larry Holmes is adamant, absolutely adamant, that he got underpaid by $2 million for beating Muhammad Ali. Uh, not only was he short-changed by Don King, his reputation had also fallen short of what he had anticipated. Instead of being considered the man of the division for defeating Muhammad Ali, he was shunned by the public for beating up a legend. In an unexpected encounter, as well, not long after this fight in 1980, couldn't quite get the precise moment it happened in 1980, but in Mexico City, Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney they had a little clash. Holmes actually called out or called the challenger the great white dope because many started to call Cooney the great white hope. And uh, Cooney retaliated by telling Holmes after a heated exchange, you need me more than I need you. Don't forget that. Now, later in the month, Jerry Cooney got another big fight, this time against Ron Lyle, who was 39-6-1 at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. 
Now, he had prepared for the bout by sparring with Tim Witherspoon, which he said was exactly the kind of work I needed. Once again, we go to the Associated Press for the breakdown of the details. Jerry Cooney has found himself right in the middle of the heavyweight championship pitcher. The left hook knocked Ron Lyle through the ropes and onto the ring apron where he was counted out at 2 minutes 49 seconds of the first round of a scheduled 10 rounder. The loss for Lyle probably eliminated the Denver fighter as a serious factor in the heavyweight division. After the emphatic victory, Cooney said, I was just getting loosened up. I was trying to make the jab work when I saw an opening and I just dug in my left hook into his body and I kept it there. That left hook to the body actually broke Ron Lyle's ribs. Now back to Holmes and after the Ali fight, he actually fell out with his long-time manager Richie Giacchetti but this time it was about money and Holmes automatically turned to Eddie Futch to take over. Ray Arcel was brought in as a backup to the new chief trainer and this time it was at Holmes' request and not Don King's demands. Asked why he had asked for Arcel's assistance even though he had Futch, Holmes told author Ronald Cade Fried it was the experience he had being around the fighters, all the great fighters and training them Roberto Duran, watching them work, getting to know them, liking them, and I wanted someone that knows boxing to talk boxing. In an interview some years later, Ray Arcel explained his role and relationship with Eddie Futch while training Holmes, and he said, Unlike the last time at the Holmes camps, Eddie welcomed me. We'd been friends for many years and shared similar ideas about boxing. He really extended himself and made what could have been an awkward situation a very rewarding experience. And we never had trouble communicating with Larry. He was gracious from start to finish. And I don't think we ever gave him cross signals. Whatever suggestions I had, I'd whisper them to Eddie before we went up into the corner between rounds. And he could take them or not. He was the boss. Now their first fight working together ended in a comfortable unanimous decision over Trevor Burbick. Who at the time was 18-1-1 on April the 11th, 1981. Interestingly enough, you might want to go and check out our Best Boxing Brawls episode that we did about two years ago because there is a very interesting street fight that took place between Larry Holmes and Trevor Burbick, uh, which resulted in Larry Holmes proceeding to do a Hulk Hogan-style leg drop off the top of a car. So if you haven't (laughs) seen that episode or you haven't heard it, please go and check it out and also check out Larry Holmes' Hulk Hogan leg drop because it is... Absolutely hilarious to watch. <laughs> Ten years on from the fight as well. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, go to YouTube. But listen to our little version first. It's, it is funny. The following month, going back to Jerry, on May 11, 1981 at Madison Square Garden, New York. Cooney, now ranked number one by the WBA and WBC, got his third big name opponent in a certain Ken Norton, 42-6-1. Now, although some went along with the hype train following his impressive knockout victories over Young and Lyle, there were still many who refused to buy into it and felt that he was still very much untested. And I have to agree with those guys. The fight lasted just 54 seconds in the first round after Cooney marched through Mr. Ken Norton with blistering power breaking the record set in 1948 by Lee Savold for the quickest knockout in a main event in Madison Square Garden. Tony Perez was his usual slow self and stopped the fight way too late 
with Norton sitting on the corner ropes, taking flush punches to the head. Norton says this was the fight that almost killed him. We did go into this when we've done Norton Holmes. He, he's adamant. He, he doesn't know how he quite survived it. And well, Cooney agreed. He said the papers the next day said four punches, four punches from death. And I believe that was true. He was out. He was sitting on the second rope. He couldn't fall. And the referee had a career of letting fights go on too long. Norton, well, he retired, uh, retired after this fight. He retired from boxing after the defeat. And he said, it's uh, self-explanatory. I did not expect Jerry to come out that quick. He hit harder and quicker than I thought he would. He surprised me with everything he did. I just didn't expect it. Uh, he's a very talented fighter. And uh, I believe that it's probably Cooney's most impressive victory, as many would. Uh, it was the biggest and most impressive win of the short career. But some criticised his opposition, even still pointing to the fact that his biggest wins were against fighters who were over the hill and all washed up. As Cooney mentioned earlier in the episode about his management team fucking him over, well, that's exactly what they did after this Norton victory. Instead of getting Cooney another fight, they decided to risk to not risk losing a big future payday. So bided their time, which resulted in Cooney not fighting for 13 months. So going back to Larry Holmes and his story of being shortchanged, well, he'd be underpaid once again by Don King in his next fight. <laughs> Instead of the $1.9 million that was recorded he received only $250,000 when he knocked out Leon Spinks in three rounds on June the 12th, 1981. Now, while Holmes was doing a post-fight interview with ABC's Howard Cassell, he spotted Cooney being steered in their direction by an ABC aide. When Cassell mentioned Cooney, Holmes said, Howard, I'm going to slap his face if you bring him over here. Holmes then stood up and went after Cooney, which resulted in a brawl where Holmes accidentally elbowed Cassell in the mouth, slightly cutting his lower lip. Then during the post-fight press conference, Holmes verbally bashed Cooney by saying, Who the hell is Jerry Cooney? I've proved over and over again that I'm the baddest heavyweight in the world. I've beaten everyone. He's the great white dope. Who's he ever beaten? He ain't fought nobody. If he wasn't white, he wouldn't be anywhere. If he was black, nobody would know who he is. Even though Cooney was ranked number one by the WBA, his provisional agreement to meet their champion Mike Weaver on October the 22nd, 1981 was scrapped when the WBA forced Weaver to fight number three contender James Quick Tillis or be stripped of his title. Their reason was that Tillis was the highest ranked available contender to Weaver when his mandatory defence was due in March 1981. After the Weaver fight fell through, Cooney's manager set the sights on Holmes for September and it was announced that Holmes and Cooney had agreed to fight. However, Holmes first had to defend his title against Ronaldo Snipes who was 22-0 on the 6th of November 1981. In his 11th defence of the WBC title, he stopped the undefeated Snipes in the 11th after being dropped in the 7th but Holmes came back to preserve the Cooney fight. Now, the Cooney fight was originally scheduled for March the 15th, 1982, but it was postponed after Cooney torn muscle fibres in his left shoulder, so it ended up being rescheduled for June the 11th. Now, after the Snipes victory, Holmes took to the ring amongst a chorus of boos and said, I tell it like it is, because come June 11, I promise you Jerry Cooney Looney will be knocked out. 
<laughs> and so the drama begins. And just just jumping back to that, what you was mentioning with uh, Mike Weaver, Cooney was gutted. He didn't get that Weaver fight. Um, if he'd have got that Weaver fight, I think he would have beaten him. And um, it would have been a good fight, but I still think he would have edged that Weaver. He'd have had the WBA title going into this fight with with Larry Holmes, which you know it probably would have even created even more money which I'm going to go into right now. But this is the build-up to this fight. There's a lot of information in there. If you didn't know about the build-up, then, well, it sort of sets the tone, really, for for today's, how things are today. It's not not that it's, it's racial, highly racial today, but, you know, with, with guys taking the knee and stuff, I think it, it just, what, 38 years ago, but there is still some some stuff that we could take from this now and learn from and still try and put out there today, but it still happens. It's just funny. The build-up, just jumping back to the build-up. Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney, well, they were guaranteed $10 million, a $20 million split for their fight, which took place at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, the money on offer was substantial, but for Cooney to get a 50-50 split as the challenger was great business from the Wacko Twins. However, Dennis Rappaport was under no illusions as to who was the A-side. We had the attraction. Larry couldn't put rear ends on seats. Jerry Cooney could. Not because he was white, but because he was right. And that was something that he loved to say as his little slogan. Always kept saying it. Now, the champion felt that he deserved a larger share, so he complained to Don King. But his protest fell on deaf ears. When Holmes was asked by a reporter what he felt about the financial splits and that it being even, he said, this fight's not just big, it's big. And half of something this big is better than anything else that's ever likely to come around. You've got to take it. Like Ali used to say, of other fair-skinned fighter, Jerry Cooney has the complexion to get the connection. <laughs> To add insult to injury, it was Cooney who appeared on the cover of the Times magazine with Sylvester Stallone after he had dropped Rocky Free that summer, which was a lot, very, very similar to this, uh, the build-up to this uh, with, with in Rocky Free with Mr. T and, and Rocky Balboa, how that worked out, or Clubber, uh, Clubber Lang, and with the arguments they had. It's just really, really weird. And it was Cooney who appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated while Holmes was relegated to the inside flat. Now, to prepare for Cooney, Larry Holmes needed a six foot six heavyweight to spar, so he contacted Randy Gordon and he remembered the call. Instantly, I knew of one. His name was Mitch Green, a six foot five inch right hander from Brooklyn. His nickname was Blood. I called Mitch Green's manager, Shelley Finkel, and he agreed to have his heavyweight join Holmes' camp as a sparring partner. Green became an integral part of Holmes' preparation for Cooney. Now, although Don King promoted one of the most highly racial campaigns in boxing history, which was enthusiastically supported by Rappaport, all they did was turn up the heat on what the media had already started. Seth Abraham, president of HBO Sports, knew exactly what King was all about, and he said, Don likes to say that the only colour he pays attention to is green. Here we had an Irish-American against an African-American, and it was a very effective sells hook don king was quoted as saying this is a white and black fight any way you look at it you cannot change that rapaport also chimed in and he said i do not respect larry holmes as a human being i don't think he's carried the championship with dignity 
Alan Barra of The Village Voice felt like there was only one man responsible for the race divide and he said, The people that handled this fight turned it into a racial dynamite and Dennis Rappaport was largely responsible for that. It was called the Battle of the Brains. The trainers and managers for both fighters assembled to answer questions from the media. And what the fighters' press conference the day before lacked in controversy, this meeting more than made up for. Cooney's co-manager, Dennis Rappaport, issued a warning to the Holmes Corner. And that one of the things that we're most concerned with, so this fight doesn't turn out to be a back-alley brawl, is thumbing. And in the case of Larry Holmes, and I'd be less candid if I didn't make this very public, You've seen this when he fought Scott Ledoux. You saw it when he fought Mike Weaver. You saw it when he fought Ernie Shavers. If he is thumbed and the referee doesn't vigorously enforce the rules, you're going to have a back alley brawl, and I'm going to tell him to knee the other guy. And I mean this. That brought this rebuttal from the champion's trainer, Eddie Futch. This seems to, to be a preamble to the use of the elbows and the forearms and other foul tactics that have been uh, ascribed to Tooney's style. I think he's trying to clear the way. He's trying to make excuses before the fact. And uh, I think it's just uncalled for at this time. And well, the fighters, especially Cooney, he distanced himself from that narrative when he was asked about that racial element of the promotion. He said, I don't particularly want to talk about it. There's been some pretty nasty things being thrown around and said, and I just like to fight with him. And then years after Cooney made it clear that the race was never an issue. And he said, I, I never thought of the white hope and that kind of thing. It was never part of myself. I was knocking everybody out. I deserved a shot at the championship and I never thought about it. Holmes though, well, he did mention the racial aspect because, because for him, he would not be making the amount of money that he was going to be making if he wasn't fighting Jerry Cooney, if he wasn't white. So he said, give me eight black guys in the ring and I'll make $10. Give me Jerry Cooney and I'll make $10 million. When Holmes was asked if all the racial talk bothered him, he was open. He said, yes, because I have to live with that. It's 1982. It's not 1920. People have to respect people for what they are. And then when the cameras were off and he wasn't sort of promoting the fight, he admitted that, it didn't matter about the colour. He said, I look at Jerry Cooney, I, I don't see a white man, a black man or a Spaniard. I just see some guy trying to take my head off. Now, the racial promotion turned very quickly into a racial war. King and Rappaport, they played a very dangerous game when dealing with such a sensitive subject. The white supremacists began to get involved when the Ku Klux Klan staged rallies in support of Cooney and announced that they would have agents ready to shoot Holmes the moment he entered the ring. And then, of course, the black groups retaliated by answering that they would also have armed people on hand in case Holmes was attacked. This added to an already intense affair. Now, Holmes began receiving death threats, and his property was actually vandalised, I believe someone wrote racial, graffitied racial slaves on his house. And he said, I felt discriminated against everywhere I went. People shot at my windows and blew up my mailbox. Ray Arcel couldn't believe what he was witnessing. He thought this type of promotional angle had moved on. 
And he said uh, there were terrible racial tensions stirred up in the name of selling the fight. It was a very nasty situation. It was a throwback to experiences I had 50 years before. And I was amazed nothing had really changed in all that time. Crazy, isn't it? Like how Mad. a few words, a, a few whispers in a few people's ears turned this from a fight between a champion and a challenger to a fight between a white man and a black man. And then you're getting all these absolute scumbag groups coming out of the woodwork and, and, and basically, you know, using it as, as as an excuse to kind of promote their own agendas and narratives. And it's, it's quite crazy. Like Larry's saying, I was getting my windows shot at, I was getting my mailbox blew up. And it's like, really? You know, is, is that how far people was was taking it? You know, it's it's crazy, crazy. to even it's crazy to even think that that, that happened o- over a fight. You know, like it is. That's how much hype. That's how much smoke was blowing into this fight. Now Holmes, he brought in the Reverend Jesse Jackson to try and help keep the peace, and he said it got beyond a great boxing match between an up and coming young fighter who was white and the champion who was black. My appeal was let Larry and Cooney fight in the ring, and don't you fight outside the ring. Does boxing need you. No, no, no. That's that's a very that's a very strong statement. Um, I enjoy it, and no, it doesn't need me. Do you need boxing? That's a that's a heavy pin question, man. Do I need boxing? Yeah, I love it. I love to fight. People or people, they all God's child or sons or daughters or whatever, and that's the way I'm gonna treat Jerry Cooney. Like he's a person, like a person who's trying to take my head off. It has nothing to do with what color he is or how much money I'm going to be able to put in the bank. All I know is that Jerry Cooney's going to come and try to take my head off. And I'm going to be able to, I'm going to have to be able to protect myself with all of my ability, my determination. What it comes down to is it's a matter of pride. And it's not the money. For some reason, it's more than even a championship. It's all the things that have been said. And everybody's been talking about Holmes, Holmes, Holmes. Wherever I go, I hear Holmes, Holmes. He's the peanut. <laughs> because of his head, he's got a peanut-shaped head. I named him the peanut. Sonny Nelson was the bear. Frog Patterson was the rabbit. Chevalier was the washwoman. Frazier, the gorilla. Spinks was the vampire. Fulman was the mummy. And this man should be known as the peanut. There's a love affair taking place today between America and Jerry Cooney. It's so profound it'll make people forget an affair to remember. There's mom, apple pie, and Jerry Cooney. Unfortunately, he hasn't the experience that Holmes has. Jerry Cooney is a refreshing change for boxing. We have the worry of going into any event, the nervousness that you have, but after that, it's, it's, it's home cooking and we're going to turn the stove on. What is scary about about losing now? What is scary about it? About the thought of it, yeah. Well, once you understand, you don't think about it all that much, you know. <laughs> but what's scary about it is that all this year is all going to go away. That's right. When you said that, it reminded me of a guy that says, "Come to work, watch me work out every day," and he says to me. Larry, come on, man, you got to do this, you do that. If I got a thousand dollars betting on you, I said, you're not my trainer. Don't tell me what to do. I said, you got a thousand dollars betting on me. 
and the people around me got their life on me. So don't tell me what to do. That's an awful lot of responsibility on your shoulders. Yeah, that's, I guess that's why my shoulders are like 44 and a half. <laughs> Holmes and Cooney continued to attend press conferences in several US cities, boxed exhibitions and took part in several interviews. At one of those press conferences, Rappaport added to the fire by practically calling Holmes a cheat and goading Cooney to retaliate if any dirty tactics were used. And this is what he said. He said, One of the things that we are most concerned with, so this fight doesn't turn into a back alley brawl, is thumbing. In the case of Larry Holmes, and I would be less candidly if I didn't make this public, you see this when he fought Scott Ledoux. You saw it when he fought Mike Weaver. You saw it when he fought Ernie Shavers. If he, as in Cooney, is thumbed and the referee doesn't vigorously enforce the rules, you're going to have a back alley brawl and I'm going to tell him to knee the other guy and I mean this. Eddie Futch, well, he responded to these taunts and he said, this seems to be a a preempt to the use of elbows and forearms and other foul tactics that have been ascribed to Cooney's style. I think he's trying to clear the way. He's trying to make excuses before the fact. And I think it's just uncalled for at this time. Well, due to the uh, consistent scraps and squabbles between both camps, uh, they could no longer be trusted. So uh, they had to be separated at uh, future functions. (laughs) Don King actually addressed the cameras in one of those last conferences by saying, we have to have press conferences in segments and separation now because the two gladiators, the champion and the contender, can't be on the same podium at the same time. Well, at the separated weigh-in, Holmes weighed in at 212 and a half pounds, the same as he was when he was razor sharp when knocking out Leon Spinks in three rounds. Even his former trainer, Richard Giacchetti, said it was beautiful weight, perfect for him. Cooney weighed in at 225 and a half pounds and said, there is nothing greater in sports than the heavyweight championship. Barry Tompkins, he called the uh, the fight live on HBO and he remembered the atmosphere. And he's, this is what he said. He said, this, that was the most volatile pre-fight I've ever been around in my life. At the weigh-in, there was a kind of tension in that room that I hadn't seen before and I haven't seen since. With the camps now divided, this carefully constructed race war had turned into a tense event and it was still considered to be, at this moment in time, one of the most highly anticipated boxing matches in the history of the sport. A record Las Vegas crowd of 29,284 attended the fight at the 32-seater capacity outdoor arena and it actually created a record live gate of over $7 million dollars. Now, there were many celebrities in attendance, including Bill Cosby, Joe DiMaggio, Farrah Fawcett, Ryan O'Neill, Wayne Gretzky and Jack Nicholson. After Wilfredo Gomez knocked out Juan Antonio Lopez in 10 rounds to retain the WBC Super Bantamweight title, Holmes and Cooney took centre stage. Now, there was certainly tension in the air just before the main event, and by the time the fight did arrive, the heat in Vegas was still approaching 100 degrees. The heat was the last thing on the fighters' minds as they made their final preparations. There were further death threats on Holmes and on Cooney, and the major concern was that they would be shot as they made their way to the ring. Rappaport said, 
I remember coming out of the changing rooms and seeing snipers on every roof. Snipers were indeed deployed on every rooftop with a clear view of the outdoor ring and all possible viewpoints where an assassin may be located. Barry Tompkins again said this years later, he said, I don't think I've ever been around a fight where the opinions were so divided. There was a whole undercurrent of anger. Larry Merchant was wary of the tent atmosphere boiling over and he said, I felt a palpable feeling of danger out there. Wow, mad, isn't it? <laughs> snipers on the roof. I, I know. Mean, there will never, ever be another fight with snipers on the roof to prevent some, some crazed nutcase flipping extremist trying to shoot one of our boxers at a time. It's just, oh, unreal, unreal. Uh, well, um, it got worse, really, for poor Larry. I mean, the ring announcer, Chuck Hall, uh, introduced the champion first. And as we know, as boxing fans, this is not the usual tradition, as normally the challenger should be introduced first and the champion last. The announcement order was shameful enough. Um, it disrespected Holmes. But the favouritism towards Cooney was far further cemented when a special hotline was installed in his dressing room so he could receive a congratulatory call or phone call from President Ronald Reagan if he had won the fight. Uh, Of course, uh, no such hotline was installed in Larry Holmes' dressing room. Uh, The fight was televised live on closed circuit and pay-per-view television all over the world. I I believe it's in 400... 50 countries or something crazy like that and it would be rebroadcast I think it was a week later on HBO and then a little bit after that on ABC TV and Mills Lane was agreed uh, by both camps to officiate the fight just a little bit about obviously the fighters we, if we didn't know already the, the Eastern Assassin Larry Holmes 39 and 0 at the time age 32 and then you had the 25-year-old gentleman, Jerry Cooney, 25 and 0. The WBC title was on the line, and the 8-5 to favourite, Holmes, was making his 12th defence. So we're going to get into the fight itself now and break the fight down. So I'll go for rounds 1-3. to three And, you know, when the boxers touched gloves before the first round, Holmes told Cooney, let's have a good fight. Now, the two started the fight pretty cautiously, with neither landing a meaningful punch, although Holmes kept up on his toes, circling the challenger and popping off his jab. The fight ignited midway through the second when Holmes threw a soft left hand to the body which forced Cooney to drop his arm. The trap was set. Holmes followed up with an overhand right that landed on Cooney's jaw. The challenger stumbled around the ring before dropping to his knees. He returned to his feet quickly and almost embarrassed and he later admitted, I had one of those awakening moments where I actually said aloud, laughing, What the hell are you doing down here? But I give it everything I had. And that's exactly what he did. He crunched home with some thudding shots to Larry's body before the bell. And it was those shots that prevented Holmes from pressing the finish. When I hit him with that punch, I was kind of surprised that he went down. Then I tried to take him out. But he fought back and was dangerous. So with me knowing that Cooney was a hard puncher, I didn't go into fight. I waited until I hurt him again. Then I got him. In the third, Cooney began landing his left hook on Holmes who told HBO years later, he, as in Cooney, hit me so damn hard, I felt it boom in my bones. In between rounds, Cooney's trainer, Victor Valley, urged him to pick up the pace, while Dennis Rappaport shouted, America needs you, Jerry. (laughs) 
Ah, oh dear, what a dickhead Dennis Rappaport <laughs> was. I'm sorry. Absolute <laughs> melt, were they? What a dick. Uh, just pisses me off that day, I tell you. So jumping on, I'm going to go from four to nine, uh, and I'll let you round it off, Sean. So, so Cooney managed to... Um, he managed to give as much as he got in the third and then landed his left hook um, to the body late in the fourth round as the crowd began to chant, Cooney, Cooney. And obviously they felt like he was trying to, he was starting to get into his fight now uh, and he was on top. By Holmes's own account, he actually uh, said that he felt lucky that that punch in the fourth round to the body, that left hook to the body, it was a good shot that landed. Uh, it, it was just, it was lucky the bell went because uh, he said he would have been in a bit of trouble. Then from the fifth round onwards, it was a closely fought bout as both fighters began trading punches. Holmes attacked again in the sixth with a strong right and had Cooney in serious trouble, almost putting him down again, almost through the ropes as well. But he took the shots and stayed on his feet before coming back with his own three heavy left hooks. Jumping on to round seven to nine. And now Cooney was beginning to show cuts on his left eye and the bridge of his nose as Holmes took control in the centre of the ring. With intent, he was was blocking Cooney's hooks while uh, snapping home those sharp counters. And by the ninth round, Cooney was clearly tiring and uh, one of his left hooks went below the belt. Referee Mills Lane warned him not to do it again, but moments later, he landed another low blow. Uh, that left hand sort of uppercut that sent Holmes, it hit him in his groin. It really hurt. You could see it hurt. It was a bad one. And uh, I believe Holmes, I, I do remember saying it was in the documentary, uh, he said 20 years later, I still feel it now. It was, <laughs> it was a bad one. Uh, and Lane ended up deducted in two points. Cooney did later turn around and say that he didn't do it intentionally. The truth was that his uh, vaunted left hook fouled to land with full impact and the more he tired Holmes just continued to parry County counter and move away from it. And, and one thing um, just, just off the top of my head, Larry Merchant, he said that the longer the fight went on, um, the more he could see the distance between the two fighters. One fighter was a complete pro and the other was an incomplete pro. And I think he was absolutely bang on with that statement. So going into the final rounds, the 10th was probably, the best round, Cooney, although he was feeling tired, he rallied and he attacked Holmes who refused to back down. The two relentlessly traded punches throughout the entire round, bringing the crowd to its feet. When the bell sounded to finish the round, the two nodded at each other in respectfulness. In round 11, Cooney landed his third low blow and Mills Lane once again took away another point, which was his third point. By now, Eddie Futch could smell the finishing line and he remembered the moment before the 12th round, I said, now go out there and get him. I knew Cooney didn't have much left, but I still didn't want Larry getting into a punch out because he was already down too low. With that heat sapping his weight and strength, I didn't want Cooney to be able to come on and catch him at a disadvantage. Into round 13 and Holmes began to land at will and the exhausted Cooney, well, he was just taking right hand after right hand and he took a straight right hand and Cooney who was bleeding from the nose and a cut left eye staggered against the ropes and clutched the top rope to try and remain upright. Mills Lane did actually count it as a knockdown and he started to give Cooney the count. At that moment, Victor Valley had seen enough and he entered the ring and he hugged his protesting fighter saying, that's enough, son, that's enough. Cooney's legs are really wild. Cooney's really gone now. He's really gone. 
Cooney very wobbly in the center of the ring. Takes another right hand. Holmes knows he has his man in trouble. Another right hand. And that eye is really opened up. Combinations of punches thrown by the champion against Jerry Cooney. This one is all but over. Cooney against the ropes. Mills Lane steps in. He did not really go down. Victor Valley. And Victor Valley is saying no more, I believe. Victor Valley is in the ring saying no more. That's it. It is over. And Mills Lane raises Larry Holmes' hand in victory. So Larry Holmes retains the title. Victor Valley stepping in and stopping the fight. Larry Holmes was declared the winner by TKO at 2 minutes and 52 seconds of round 13, ending what was one of the most anticipated fights that was race-related. I think the only fight I can think of in recent memory that was all prominently about the race was was this unbelievable, unbelievable tale of, of two guys, really. Well, like Larry Merchant said, one guy that was a the consummate pro and the one guy that was just an incomplete pro and... I think when you watch that fight back, you can see the levels between them as the rounds go on. Yeah, and I think uh, even uh, Cooney said he was so worried about... Uh, literally, when the bell rang, he said, I started worrying about I haven't been the distance. I think he'd only been like eight rounds. I don't think he'd ever been any further than eight rounds. So um, he was worried about it. He tried to pace himself. Um, Holmes was... He knew he was dangerous. He knew that left hook was dangerous. He kept away from it. He had some great brains in his corner while um, poor Cooney had Rappaport chatting a load of old shit um <laughs> i don't even know what he was thinking that guy i tell you uh but yeah what what's a the, the thing is with, with coney it, it just it was inevitable that he was he was just going to get found out and he had to take out Holmes early if he's going to get this win he's going to be early but i mean lucky for him he had victor valet in his corner um or valet uh, in his corner but you know it's this to be honest i think Cooney for all that he did, he was a good fighter, but it was no way he was ever, ever going to beat Holmes. But in saying that, right at the end of the fight, there's always a, a shocker. Uh, and it's always the, the scoring. Yeah, it's always the shocker, isn't it? Every, every damn fight. <laughs> um, after 12 rounds, two of the three judges, Dave Moretti, who uh, the Holmes camp actually tried to have replaced before the fight, and Dwayne Ford, they had Holmes ahead by just two points. Wow. 113 to 111. So had Mills Lane not deducted three points from Cooney, Ford and Moretti would have had Cooney ahead on points going into the 13th round. Shocking. Larry, could you capsule your thoughts about the fight? My thoughts about the fight? Yeah, quickly. I'm still the baddest heavyweight in the world, Larry, and I think you should give me my credit. Even because you don't have no cash, please give me some credit. <laughs> what were you expecting from this man realistically in the fight? You did show respect for him. Yeah, well, he had a little, he punched a little better than I anticipated. He got a very good jab, and uh, he used it. And uh, he's, he's a good puncher. He's all around boxer. I think he got to develop his chin a little better. It seemed that you were giving a clinic on how to deal with his left hook. You were playing with one hand, playing with it with one hand and then with the other. Was that your major strategy to, to fend off that left hook? I was countering it. Everything he would use with it, I would try to counter. I was blocking, I would let him throw it. And uh, he wasn't doubling up on it. So uh, I think I mastered everything that Jerry Kuhn had. I am a great boxer, Larry, and the world know it. Thank you very much. After the second I'm round, after this- you on HBO. <laughs> And I love HBO, and I hope that people get the chance to watch this fight live on HBO. Here's to the American people, because y'all are the knockout. 
the third judge, Jerry Roth, who was substituted the day of the fight for Herb Santos due to objections from the home camp. He actually had Holmes ahead, 115 to 109, <laughs> which I think, yeah, I think that's a far more accurate reflection of the fight. And Holmes actually said, I've seen so much bad scoring out here. I knew what I had to do. I was prepared for anything. By Ray Arcel's account, Cooney fouled Holmes eight times and the referee did nothing to stop it. He told Dave Anderson, it was the most racially promoted fight I ever I ever remember. I always had great respect for Mills Lane as a referee, but the night of that fight, Mills became an Irishman. He then added in his memoir, in all his previous fights, Cooney had never landed a foul punch. In this fight, he immediately started to use foul tactics. One time, his low blow landed on Larry's cup. You could tell it was deliberate. At one point, even Lane had to give Larry a five-minute rest and warn Cooney. After the fight, Cooney repeatedly apologised to his supporters and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I tried with all my heart. Yeah, he was it was devastated for, for Jerry. I mean, the fact is, is these fighters, they didn't want to be involved in this. Uh, we'll, we'll come to that. I mean, I mean, Barry Tompkins, he summed up the whole ordeal for those two fighters, for Cooney and for uh, for Holmes, um, who were, who were clearly the innocent parties here. And this is what he told the ring. He said, Larry, Larry and Jerry were really good guys uh, who were thrown into a racially charged situations, a situation and neither one of them had anything to do with it. Holmes was, uh, as usual, uh, he was done like a kipper uh, financially once again. Most others uh, with access to these records um, with, with Don King agree that Basically, King did uh, pay Jerry Cooney at least two or three million dollars more than Holmes when all the closed circuit revenues were divided. And Holmes uh, says that Jerry got his full share, but I didn't get mine. I had to sue Don over the accounting and auditing for the Cooney fight. I never saw a contract for the Cooney fight. Now, Jerry Cooney's career after the fight, well, he didn't fight again for two years after the Holmes fight. After two knockout wins in 1984, he retired. He came back then with a first-round knockout win in 1986 and then fought Michael Spinks for the Lineal World Heavyweight Championship in 1987. Cooney was stopped in five rounds and retired again. In 1990, he came back for one final time and was stopped by Big George Foreman in two rounds and he finished his career with a record of 28-3 and with 24 knockouts. So Larry Holmes' career after the fight then, now... He remained the champion until 1985 when he actually lost the title to Michael Spinks on a close decision. Now, we did do a career profile on Michael Spinks, so please do go and check that out because we do talk a lot more about the two fights that he had because he had the rematch with Spinks the following year and lost that one in a controversial decision. He then decided to retire. He then returned in 1988, come out of retirement to face Mike Tyson for the WBA, WBC, IBF heavyweight titles, but was stopped in the fourth round. That was the only knockout loss of his career. He retired again, but then returned in 1991. He got two more title shots, losing decisions to Evander Holyfield and Oliver McCall. Holmes retired for good after defeating Butterbean, of all people, in 2002, and he finished his career with a record of 69 wins, 6 losses and 44 knockouts. Uh, A legendary career. Bit, Bit of a shame, obviously, like we've said before in the past, that he had to come back and keep coming out of retirement, but I think from what I remember from my career profile on Larry, at that point, it was always all about the money then. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we, it was pretty clear towards the end of his career. 
just all about money. We've done a, a, arriving at his, front, at his house with a suitcase full of money, offering him the Mike Tyson fight because he needed a big name for Tyson, um, and he took it. <laughs> we got shortchanged every time. Uh, that was after getting caught against him and everything. Um, uh, he just had a way with, with, with Larry, didn't he, uh, Don? But um, Holmes and Cooney, well, um, they're friends. Uh, Holmes actually helped Cooney with the uh, fist uh, fighters initiative for support and training, an organisation Cooney founded to help retired boxers. Uh, Holmes told the ring, um, the the blacks wanted me to win, the whites wanted Jerry to win, but I told Jerry if he wins, he wins. They did have nothing to do with colour. Jerry and I are good friends to this day. We talk a lot. We do things together. We talk about other people involved in that promotion and how they felt and things they said. But you know what? I let it go. I don't pay that no mind. Um, and good words. I'm glad they're friends. And and the other thing we probably didn't mention is, is Jerry actually did start drinking at the age of 12 because his dad being a dysfunctional alcoholic and obviously beat, beat the shit out of his kids. Um, he actually started drinking at 12. Crazy. And he continued that all the way into his career. And he said throughout his career, and he said actually it was during this time of the Holmes fight that just the publicity of it um, and, and the exposure it got and all the racism that surrounded it, it, it drove him to, to hit the bottle. He, he doesn't use that as an excuse. So that's why we didn't go through it um, during the fight. I think it's better to speak about these things after because he never once used it as an excuse for the reason why he lost. But he was, um, yeah, he was, he was hitting the bottle even during that time. Now, years later, Larry Holmes told the ring he, as in Cooney, didn't get himself back to world title contention, but fighting me and losing to me took a lot out of him. That was the sad thing about it. If Jerry had thought someone else, he would have been the heavyweight champion of the world. His management blew it, but they weren't thinking about the fighter. They were thinking about the money. Jerry Cooney told CBZ Newswire, all this black and white bullshit that they had spun had a real effect on everyone. To give you an example, I love Larry Holmes, but he was bitter at me during the whole promotion. See, Larry came up hard, always in the shadow of Ali, and now he's the champion, but he's fighting a kid who's on the cover of Time Life. Whatever was going through his head, the media didn't help matters. But I'll tell you one thing about Larry. When the referee finished his instructions and we tap gloves, Larry says to me, let's have a good fight. That statement alone took all the tension away and we were just two professionals in there doing our job. And that says what you needed to say really about, about this tale. That yeah. you know, it was it was hyped up by the people that surrounded the fight. They made it into a race war, they made it into black versus white. They used their own agendas to promote this fight and make as much money as they could out of it, which is what a lot of these guys usually do surrounding the sport, unfortunately. But it's nice to see, you know, at the end of it all, in today's world, that these two guys became friends. These two guys, you know, spend time together. These two guys have gone past all the bullshit that was there at the time. And it it is crazy to think that they were involved in one of the most anticipated fights of all time. And the reason it was so anticipated was because of the race. It was the race factor that made it so anticipating. If you think about the careers, Larry Holmes, really, you know, on paper, if this this race aspect of it wasn't brought to it, we wouldn't have been talking about this fight the way we are now. We wouldn't be considering it as a legendary night. It's because of everything surrounding it is why we're considering it as a legendary night. Because the fight itself, really, it, it was back and forth throughout it, but it wasn't, you know, one of the great fights of all time. 
season one finale was was Holmes and Norton, and that <laughs> fight was a better fight than Holmes and Cooney for me. So yeah. it was more so the fact that there was such a big story surrounding it that we had to do this. We had to bring a good finale for you, and I hope you you know listening that you've actually enjoyed giving the, you know us giving you this as a finale because there's so many other fights that you could sit in and and, and do. But we need a, we need something that's got a really good story to it, and this had a good story to it. It wasn't a good story in the sense that you know we don't like the racial aspect of it because we, we never do. But the story surrounding it, what led these two guys to come in the ring together, was that you know there was people outside of the circle that were wanting to make as much money as they possibly could, and they would promote their own agendas, and they put these two guys who really they didn't give a shit about. When it came down to it, they didn't give a shit about them. They only give a shit about what sort of money it was making, and it was nice to see that these two guys of their own accord were able to get past it all. And, and be able to work together years later and doing good things to help people in life. And that's the nice, nice really ending to the story for me. You know, like all the shit that came with it turned into something really good at the end of it all. Yeah, it did. And, and I think the fact as well that um, I think it still sits at like number 35 as one of the uh, uh, biggest money makers. Uh, uh, that at seven million odd dollars in in eighty two. I mean, it sits at thirty five. Obviously, time's gone on since then. You got like Ford Mayweather that tops the charts of that now. But in a Vegas fight, so that just shows you, though, you know, still sitting at thirty five. This earned a lot of money, and for a contender, for Jerry Cooney to get ten million dollars, and he just come out of nowhere just because he sort of knocked out Ken Norton in, in one round. That 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 just that just that, that is mad, uh, and and you could see why they went down that route. You know, King see a, a way in. You know, the press already started it. They just sort of stick added to the flames, if you like, and then they continued it and span it and tweaked it to make sure that it becomes a race thing. Um, and it, and it it wasn't good. It wasn't good for those two. Jerry and Larry just wanted to fight, and it didn't matter. And and Larry was pissed off all the time because he was just never getting the credibility. Some of the things he come out with at the time, probably a little bit silly. And he went back and, you know, he, he's matured now. You know, he isn't so angry. He's much more laid back now. And obviously you can see why him and Jerry have become friends. But, um, yeah, it just shows you that at the end of it, end of all the bullshit, amongst all the bullshit, eventually two nice guys end up becoming mates. It's just how it rolls, isn't it? You know, when you, when you move out all the crap and all the arseholes, eventually <laughs> some good comes out of it and that's what, what, what we got out of it. it was two guys now becoming friends and doing things for fighters that have to retire early from the sport and try and uh, give them some money which is a great a great uh, uh, organization a campaign that that jerry cooney created that fist um company campaign so uh yeah massive massive shout out to, to him for doing that well that's it fight fans that's season two done and dusted and you know what? We'll do a little wrap-up episode, as we always do for the season. We'll bring you that in a week or so, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll you know we'll talk about our sort of experiences throughout the course of the season in terms of putting these episodes together again, and, and obviously our conversations about some of the stories that we've done for this series as well, which have been quite compelling to say the least. But it's yeah. been it's been wonderful. It's been another wonderful series. Ten ten episodes, ten completely different fights, ten completely different stories. Uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. This particular tale of Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney was was one that I've wanted to do for a while, and I'm glad we've been able to get round to slotting this in. 
and yeah it's 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 been great it's been great to 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 really get down to to business and and get the season wrapped up really because obviously as you know guys there's other series that we do in the next series that's coming out in october is the dark side of boxing season two so legendary nights is it coming back for season three well you'll have to wait and find out but it's been a great season too we've really enjoyed it and we've really enjoyed this tale and as always for you guys that have been listening the support that we've received from you has been immense and thank you so much for all the reviews thank you so much for all the comments all the shares on social media the subscriptions on youtube thank you so much for helping us build that channel there as well and we hope you have enjoyed the series we hope you have enjoyed this particular legendary night and of course if there is anything that you think we've missed or not done or could have done better then we always do please ask you to tell us because at the end of the day we we just enjoy doing what we do we put it together you know it's a part-time job for us this this is not something we do on a full-time basis so if there are sort of certain elements of things that you think we've missed then you know we'd really love to hear from you and let us know what they are and it's one of them things you know when no one says nothing about what we're doing as far as we're concerned we're doing a good job so we're glad that you guys are enjoying it and if you've not already followed us on social media you can do it it's at legend night pod on twitter or btr boxing pod on instagram on facebook and on youtube please do find us on any of them channels that you may be subscribed to and give us a follow retweet any of the content that goes out share it on facebook share it on instagram it really really does help us we really do appreciate it and johnston if you've got any final words on this particular tale and just a brief word on the season as a whole us i love it mate um absolutely love doing legendary night stuff um you know, it we it we've done what was it twenty twenty episodes in that first season, and then uh, ten in this one. Uh, we had to shorten it down because, quite simply, that we don't want to. Uh, it's 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 not a massive cluster of fights. There are we have a list. We've got a, a massive list of fights. It's just whether they fit the bill for that legendary night status. So it's we're now going to have to go back and just make sure uh, we can continually. I'm sure we will be able to. Uh, uh, we'll have to see, but I am. I've, I've enjoyed doing this second season. We've we've had some great stories. It'd be nice to do the roundup and just go back on some of those stories again and just um, direct people that haven't haven't heard them uh, there again and just to to bring them up, say which ones are our best and etc. How how we put it together, which would be great. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. And yeah, dark side of boxing, man. Um, uh, all I'm saying is one name was mentioned in this legendary night that we will be doing. Uh, one of our favourite characters. Um, really looking forward to that. And yeah, so there's trainers out there. Have a look and you'll be able to see some of the names we're going to be looking at for the Dark Side of Boxing Season 2. I can't wait. It's going to be another belter. I really do. Some of them stories are amazing. But yeah, just to finish off, Legendary Nights has been brilliant. We want to continue into Season 3 and massive thank you to everyone that supports us. We just can't thank you enough. Like So much love to you people and, you know, Oh, just just keep doing what you're doing. Keep supporting us. Trying to push it out on YouTube. Please subscribe on there. Um, and you know you're just going to help us improve and give us gives us the uh, chance to spend more time in bringing you more information, more stories, and that's what we want to be able to do. So yeah, um, please subscribe. 
Well, thanks for listening. It's been a it's been a great pleasure as always, Fight Fans. Uh, one final shout out is going to be for the patrons of the podcast who sign up to the Patreon membership service. You guys put your hands in your pockets and you support us, which has allowed us to be able to create higher quality audio versions of the podcast. It's allowed us to cover our hosting fees so that we can have more than one show on the network. A big shout out to you guys. And in return, of course, as part of your membership service, you'll be listening to this as an early access episode. So I hope you have enjoyed getting it earlier than than the rest of the guys. But hey, the rest of the guys that are listening, you know, we we really appreciate you too because you're reviewing, you're subscribing, you're retweeting, you're sharing, you're doing everything you ask, we're asking you to do. Keep doing it. Keep telling your friends about it. Keep tagging them in it. We do genuinely appreciate it. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope you've enjoyed this season. And we hope you've enjoyed this tale of Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney. Podcast Network.